Today we turn in God's Word to Matthew chapter 4, picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. Hear now God's Word. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city, And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, Angels came and were ministering to him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Loved ones, what is temptation? Well, one person says it is when circumstances come together and you have the ability and the desire to do what God forbids. When nothing good is offered, no temptation exists, right? So I don't like pea soup. Maybe you do. I'm glad for you if you do. I really am. But I do not ever get tempted to be a glutton when it comes to pea soup. But maybe something else. Definitely something else, right? What's at the heart of temptation? It is a forgetting of the Lord and his word. The fundamental point of temptation is about what we love. And the things we love, we worship. Every temptation, loved ones, is a test of our view of God. God is not the father of our temptation. God is the father of our satisfaction. The question then is whose voice rules our life? our hearts, our home, our phone and our use of it, and technology and social media, the way we pursue leisure and entertainment, the way we view the Lord's Day, the way we view our church family, our family in our home, our friends, our school, whose voice is ruling us in all of those different areas? Temptation is a daily struggle that we all face. We have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
The intensity at times can be great. Maybe this morning you come violently filled with temptation. Fears or weariness or distraction of mind or all manner of things. As Christians, we're not immune from that. We are tempted with physical desires, visual desires, prideful desires, 1 John 2. But we don't face these temptations alone. We face them in Christ, who himself in this text was tempted and yet obeyed and achieved a righteousness for us. We face them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see here Jesus in all of his beauty and glory and humiliation and suffering. And we'll look at this text and we'll also look at how this applies to us because Jesus is an example to us in this way. That's not the first place to look, but it is part of how this applies. And then we'll also look at then what does this mean for us day by day. First, Christ conquering the tempter in the temptation for false satisfaction. Do you remember where we've been, kids? Jesus was baptized, undergoing a baptism of repentance in our place, even though he's sinless, offering up a consecrated life to God for us, undergoing a baptism of judgment for us. The Spirit has come upon him. The Father has said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's key when you see what Satan is about to say here. And now in chapter 4, the Holy Spirit, who has descended on Christ, leads Christ into the wilderness. Why would that be? Because, loved ones, Christ is the greater Moses. He is the true Israel of God. He is about to succeed as God's covenant servant, where Adam and Moses and Israel and all of us have failed. That's primarily what this text is about. Jesus is identifying with Israel. Wilderness wanderings, testings related to things like food and idolatry and worship. All of this was what Israel went through, and now Christ is going through it in our place. These are the first acts of his kingly rule. He is restoring the kingdom of God in the wilderness of this world of sin. He's being driven out there. He's not on the defensive. He's on the offensive. The wilderness is the battleground of the covenant of grace. He's going into enemy-occupied territory as the warrior son of God to battle the devil. He's going forth to do what all of the Bible has said, crush the serpent. This is what Moses and Pharaoh and that face-off was about. This is what David and Goliath was about. It's all pointing here. It's all about Christ. All of God's promises lead to this point. This is why he came. The Son of God came into the world to defeat and destroy the devil and his works. He steps into the wilderness. He deals a crushing blow to Satan and the powers of darkness. This is encouraging to you, Christian. You turn on the news. You hear of wars and rumors of wars, of plague and pestilence and death and suffering and evil, and you wonder, has this world spun out of control? God is on the throne. 
Jesus here is tempted to redeem us. He's tempted here to conquer Satan, the archenemy. He's tempted here to, re- and, and, and what he does is he comes to reverse the curse. That's what he's doing, conquering Satan, reversing the curse. All the world is under a curse. He's coming to do what the first Adam failed to do, to fulfill the covenant of works, to bring his people into grace, to do so in the fullness of time as the last Adam. These are big picture things. The kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus. So the Spirit leads him, verse 1. And where is he being led, children? Out into a desert, kind of by the Dead Sea in Judea, where there are rocks and cliffs, snakes and scorpions. This is not a place you and mom and dad want to go on vacation. Right? This is uninhabitable. This is like the badlands of South Dakota without the tourist sites. If Adam was in Eden, Jesus is in anti-Eden. The parallels to Eden are all over this text. Adam turned the garden into a wilderness. Jesus goes to the wilderness to turn this fallen world into the garden of God, which he will finally do when he returns. Forty days he's tempted. The picture in Luke's gospel is these are continual temptations, not just these three. Reminds us, kids, of the 40 years, do you remember, that Israel was in the wilderness. Why was Israel there for 40 years? Numbers tells us the spies went and looked at the land. They said, the land looks great, but the people freak us out. They're big. We don't want to go in there. A couple of them, Joshua and Caleb, didn't say that. They doubted God's word. They feared man more than they feared God. The Lord says, for each day you're in the land, you will be in the wilderness for one year. That's why the 40 years. Jesus is true Israel. He fasted here for 40 days. Why is that? Moses, Exodus 34, fasting on the mountain, 40 days. Christ is the greater Moses. Elijah, 1 Kings 19, fasted 40 days. Christ is the one who is greater than Elijah. He's hungry. That's a long time, kids, isn't it, to go without food. Sometimes if we go for four hours, we can be hangry in our house. Maybe that's just me. Hungry and angry together. It's a bad combination. Jesus here doesn't eat for almost six weeks. Many people would die if they went this long without food. At this point, he is closer to death than at any other point apart from the cross. Jesus is truly man. He couldn't have lived 400 days without food. But 40, yes. And he's hungry. It's not like he's unaffected by this. He needs sleep and food but he is on the offensive here, fasting, because he chooses to do so, earning our redemption every step of the way. Verse 3 says, Satan comes to him at this point. He appeals to him and tempts him where he's weak. Jesus, you're hungry. There's all sorts of stones in the desert. Why don't you take some of these stones, make them bread, and take away the headache? 
the stomach pain. It'll go away. There's nothing wrong with that, Jesus. And you might think, well, what would be wrong with that? Do you remember later on in the Gospels, Jesus feeds the 5,000 bread and fish. Why can't he do that here? He cannot do that here, loved ones, because all of his miracles are not for his own benefit. They are to show others that the kingdom of God has broken in on this present evil age. If he had done this here, he would have failed the mission the Father sent him to do. Look at what the devil wants him to do. He wants him to doubt something. Do you notice that? Jesus, if you are the Son of God. What did the Father just say to him in the baptism? You are my beloved Son. Jesus, your Father doesn't really love you. If he did, you wouldn't be so hungry. You'd have food. This is what Satan did in the Garden of Eden. This is what he still does. Has God really said? That word of God in front of you, that's really not the inerrant, inspired word of God, is it? No. Has God really spoken? If you are the Son of God. The temptation comes to us, loved ones, not to turn stones to bread, right? We, we're not tempted there, but what? To doubt God when things are not going well. To live as practical atheists. To be encased in fear. To fear the world and people more than God. Martin Luther faced this temptation to doubt God, unbelief. He would have weeks where he would be in black spiritual depression. One day his wife came by, put a black fabric over the door, which at that point was a sign in that culture that someone had died. Luther came in, he said, oh no, what now? Who's dead now? What more bad news do you have to add to my burdens? His wife replied, my dear Martin, God has died. He said, what? You blaspheme. No, she said, you do. You act like it. Loved ones, so much of our anger and frustration and impatience is acting as if God is dead or as if God is not sovereign or God doesn't care. We're tempted to not trust God's providence. We're tempted to try to control things, to take it into our hands, to try to bring about what we want, or to control people around us to do what we want them to do. We're tempted to self-will, to depend on our own abilities, rather than humbly trusting and submitting to God. We're tempted to be prayerless, and then to give up in despair, or to be puffed up in pride. We're tempted to distrust God's love, to grumble in discontentment, to say, if God really loved me, then I wouldn't be dealing with this. If God really loved me, I wouldn't be sick. If God really loved me, my kids wouldn't have turned out this way. If God really loved me, I wouldn't have so much disappointment. And then the lie is, if we are doing well, we're tempted to say, well, I got all this for myself. Deuteronomy 8, 17. My power, my might. I did this. Do you see the flip side of the temptation? Materialism. 
Man shall not live by, you fill in the blank, alone. Whatever it is in our hearts that we say, without that, I can't live. That is my life. Man shall not live by that alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus says to the devil. Where is he quoting? Do you notice that, kids, your Bibles and the footnotes? Deuteronomy 8, what was that about? That's when Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. That's when they were distrusting God's love. And where Israel failed over and over again was around what? Food. The manna from heaven. Oh, I'm sick of this manna. I want meat. The quail. Oh, we got quail, but the cucumbers were way better in Egypt. The garlic. Things were much better when we were slaves. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Israel ate manna. They died. The priests in the Old Testament ate the holy bread in the temple. They died. Jesus, he is the living bread from heaven the word that came from the mouth of God. Our natural discontentment is we want bread, we want to force God's hand, we want it now. We want our best life now. But that's a lie from Satan. Jesus is our bread. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our peace. We don't live merely by the improvement of external circumstances, although we pray for that. We pray for those who are sick and struggling. We grieve in the midst of trials, but we live every day by the word of the gospel of God. Jesus says to Satan, in effect, my father led me here. The Holy Spirit is taking care of me. And kids, do you notice at the end of this, angels come. They minister to him, reminding us in some ways of, again, Elijah, the father cares for his son. The echoes here of Eden are all over the place. Take and eat, Satan said to Eve. You won't die if you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Take and eat, Satan says to Jesus. You will die if you don't turn these stones to bread. And now those words are gracious to us. As God says to us, take and eat. Jesus says, this is my body. Do you see the flow here of redemptive history? The Father says to you, I am good, I love you, I've provided my Son for you. I've given you everything in Christ. Take and eat, he was crucified for your sins. Take and eat and know the assurance of the Father's love for you. We see secondly, the temptation to doubt and test God. Satan's not finished. The second temptation, he brings Jesus where, kids? To the top of a temple, the Jerusalem temple. 500 feet down is the Kidron Valley. How does this work, now you ask? Well, we don't understand. Did Satan take on a physical form here? We don't know. Was Jesus physically carried to this spot, or was this visionary? D.A. Carson and John Calvin say it's probably visionary. 
How does he get physically up there on that point? We don't really fully know. Mark's gospel says Jesus is in the wilderness for the entirety of the ordeal of 40 days. The point, though, is this. Satan hears what Jesus just said. Jesus just went where in answer to Satan's temptation? To the word of God. So Satan, crafty as he is, goes to the word of God. This time, kids, where is he going? Do you see in Matthew 4, verses 6 and 7? He's going to Psalm 91, which we just sang before the sermon today. A psalm that says whether war comes, disease, pestilence, plague, famine, God will protect his people. He goes there and quotes the words of verses 11 and 12. God will command his angels concerning you. But he doesn't quote Psalm 91 13, which is a passage that talks of Satan himself. Jim Cassidy says this, Psalm 91, 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Satan doesn't go there. He stops at verse 12. The psalm speaks of the destruction of Satan himself. And this is what the devil does. This is what false teachers do. They misquote the Bible. They misapply the Bible. They take portions out of the Bible out of context. And they make the Bible say almost anything they want when they do that. Satan loves to misinterpret the Bible. But do you know what he doesn't love? He doesn't love God. He knows the Bible better than most of us. But there's no love in his heart for the Lord. Why would Satan tempt Jesus like this? Remember what he said? If you are the son of God, Jesus. So that's still going on here. Jesus, why don't you prove you're the son of God? Why don't you jump from the top of the temple? The angels will come like the psalm says. They'll save you. People will be amazed at what you did. Fireworks display, popularity. Jesus, prove it. Jesus, why don't you test God? That's Psalm 95. Israel tested God in the wilderness. Again, back to the Garden of Eden. Satan said to Eve, eat and you will not surely die. God has lied to you. To Christ, he says, jump. You will not surely die unless God has lied to you. It's the Garden of Eden. It's being replayed once again. And the temptation comes to us in a different sort of way. But we're tempted to test God. We're tempted to think, okay, I'm in a tough spot. God, if you get me out of this, then I will do that. That's paganism. That's kind of the idea of God as a rabbit's foot. We're tempted to say, The problem is too big, God, to live in constant fear. My enemies are too strong. Nothing will ever change. To tempt God, loved ones, is the sign of a hard heart. Jesus hears what Satan says, verse 7. Do you remember what he said to Peter later on? Peter cut the servant's ear off. Jesus said, I could call down angels right now. So Jesus could have done that. But that would have been to distort the Bible 
or rebellious reason. Jesus knew the Father said, I love you. You're my beloved son. He didn't need anyone else to prove it. There's just an aside, kids. You kids who are trusting in Christ, God loves you. Young girls, God loves you. Young boys, God loves you. Kids may say awful things to you. People may treat you horribly, which that shouldn't happen, but God loves you. Remember that. Jesus refuses to jump. He rebukes the devil again with the Bible, again with Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, which says, you shall not test the Lord your God, as Israel did when? In the wilderness, at Massa. Israel had already done that. They'd failed. Now Christ himself, the better Israel, comes to do his Father's will. Not to pull off a stunt. He is the Son of God. One day, this is pointing forward even further, the Father will prove to all the world that this is his Son. Do you know when that day was? When the Father raised him from the dead? That's the final proof of his sonship. Jesus is waiting for that day. He's earning your redemption every step of the way. Third, we see a temptation to idolatry. Somehow, Satan puts before Jesus' eyes the kingdoms of the world. Again, we can't fully comprehend this. It's a supernatural, demonic power that's at work. D.A. Carson again says, this is certainly visionary. There's no mountain high enough in all the world where you can see everything in the world. We don't know what this looks like. Is this future civilizations? Is it showing Jesus power and glamour and military might? We're not sure. The question, though, is this. Why would that be a temptation for Jesus? What does Satan think he's doing here? He's offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world? Does Satan have the kingdoms of the world? What's happening? Loved ones, Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. That's why Jesus came into the world, to get the lost world back for himself from all nations and tribes. So Satan is cleverly going to Psalm 2. Jesus, remember that? These kingdoms will be yours, and I will give them to you if you bow down and worship me. Does Satan have authority to do that? He is the prince of the power of the air. The world lies in the power of the evil one. But any power Satan has is only because God permits him to have it. The earth is the Lord's, isn't it? The fullness thereof. So he speaks partial truth here. Yes, he prowls around, but he can't give this to whomever he wants. There's that part. But how about what he's saying to Jesus? Go back to the Garden of Eden again. Adam was given dominion, over all the world, and he was promised greater glory if he extended the garden temple in Eden to the whole world. 
He broke the covenant of works. He failed. Now Jesus, the last Adam, this is a wasteland of a fallen world he's standing in. Before him is the dominion that Adam lost, the glory that Adam never gained. And Satan says, all of this is yours, Jesus. You don't have to live a life of obedience and suffering. You don't have to go to the cross. That's the foundation of all these temptations. You can have it, Jesus, without the crucifixion. Satan is trying to prevent that climactic event when Jesus will crush his head. Satan was there in the Garden of Eden. He knew what God said, that Satan's head would be crushed. And he wants Jesus to usher in the kingdom without enduring the cross, which he couldn't do, and he wouldn't do. Satan comes to us. You don't have to believe this gospel stuff. You don't have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after Jesus. You can just worship whomever and whatever you want. There's all sorts of visual things out there to look at. All sorts of appeals to the eye. Intense visual desire is before you. And that's what our sinful hearts want. Loved ones, so many people say after they sin, with their head down, I don't know what came over me. If only I would have seen where this would have led. But I wanted it so badly. Jesus does not give in to the devil's lies. It's phony. It's a smokescreen. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 13. You shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. Where is that coming from? Israel's possession of the promised land. God said to Israel, when you enter the land, don't forget me. Remember who I am. Remember, Israel, what I have done. Don't neglect me. What's at the heart of temptation? Forgetting the Lord and forgetting his word. What we love, we worship. Jesus says in verse 9, Satan, be gone. Satan leaves. The devil departs from him until an opportune time. Meaning, as you read the rest of the New Testament. Jesus has conflicts with Satan all over. Peter, remember that? Get behind me, Satan, Jesus will say to Peter. Peter's trying to stop Jesus from going where? To the cross. The Garden of Gethsemane, Satan is there, releasing his arts and darts against Jesus. On the cross itself, people in the crowd mock if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. If the same lie that Satan himself was saying, if you're the Son of God, prove it. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the last Adam. His obedience constitutes the righteousness God's demands. By one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. By one man's obedience, Christ, Romans 5, the many are made righteous. Jesus is going into the wilderness here. Darkness is fleeing. 
as you read the Gospels. He's going to be healing people. Demons are going to be cast out because Jesus is the stronger man who comes into the strong man's house to bind the strong man, Mark 12, to release the prey from the mighty, Isaiah says. By faith, loved ones, do you grasp the wonder of what Christ has done here for you? He has kept the broken covenant of works. He has fulfilled the righteousness we need before, but to stand before God. He has met every stipulation. He has endured the sanctions. He has obtained the glorious promises for you in your place. This is a gracious gift of salvation. Do you trust him by faith? And does that make a difference now forth in our life? Fourth, we see some applications. God cannot be tempted, right? Jesus is fully God, fully man. He took on a human nature, but he did not stop being God. So, how do we understand this? There's a lot here. We're not going to spend a lot of time Christologically, meaning the study of Christ. Could Jesus have sinned? No. The doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. Jesus was incapable of sinning. The humanity of Jesus never exists apart from the person, the divine logos, the eternal word of Christ. Does that mean then the temptation was not real? No. That the temptation is more real in Christ than any of us experience because his humanity is true, Charles Barrett says. He did it so you would have salvation. His temptations are greater in measure and more intense in power than anything we face. This is the depth of his condescension. He bore temptation in a way none of us ever would or could. Our temptations, 1 Corinthians, are filtered through God's protective hand. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able. God protects you from the worst temptations imaginable. But not so with Christ. With Christ, there is an unmitigated onslaught of hell challenging him as a man and as the Messiah. When we give in to temptation, we don't know the strength of the evil impulse in us until we try to fight it, right? Christ never yielded. He knows to the full, and he alone to the full, what temptation means. That helps you in your struggle. Because here we are, living as those who are justified yet sinful. We're united to Christ. God doesn't tempt us. God does test us. And we are assailed from an enemy within. Our temptations come physically, mentally, emotionally. Many of our temptations are a rerun of old temptations. They are a rerun of old ways we've sinned. Like the tape is being played back again. And here comes the enemy from within. James 1 tells us, Desire gives birth to sin. Sin leads forth to death. The desire to sin is sin. There's a story D.A. Carson tells 
We'll call this man Jack. He was married, true story, had two children, elder of a solid biblical church. He had been a medical missionary in Africa. He helped a lot of people, both with their medical needs and also as a counselor. Then Jack got into an ongoing adulterous relationship. He would not repent. He would not leave the other woman. Eventually, he was excommunicated from the church. A few years later, the pastor of the church where he served as an elder said, I've come to the reluctant conclusion that this man had never, ever taken a serious decision that cost him anything. He does what he always has done. He does what he wants to do. So he sees a woman who's not his wife, and he just takes her. He's always done what he wants. The pastor said, I cannot find any decisive turning point in his life when he made a decision to do something he didn't want to do because it was right, because that's what the Word of God says, or because he believes that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The man had never said death to self-interest and yes to Christ. There was no sign of it anywhere, he said. Loved ones, I ask, have you been in a position where you're forced to say no to something you would really like to do? An attitude or a stance on something you want to take to a moral choice that you'd really like to, to go And all of God's word says it's wrong, it's sinful. Have you ever gotten to that point? And then Carson says, have you repented and trusted Christ? Because he has poured out his spirit on you. He has given you a new heart. So that whatever the old nature is drawn to that dirty, sinful desire, there is something by God's spirit that says, no, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In our hearts, we need to identify the sinful desire that's there. Don't just go after the circumstance. Then, by God's Spirit, the temptation loses its power, we pray. It may be a battle your whole life, but it's a sign of God's grace when it's no longer as attractive as it once was. When you have a new hunger for the word of God, when you see that sin for what it is, its ugliness, its offense against the holy God, we then develop new instincts towards sin. That's a sign of God's grace. So instead of gossiping or silently listening to gossip, We speak the truth in love, and we tell the person who's gossiping to stop. That's one example of this. Or instead of anger, God gives us the grace of patience. God doesn't just want us to stop sinning. He wants us to walk in new obedience, in new love for Christ, and love for the law of God. This is not a guilt debtor's ethic. It's not, okay, Jesus earned it, now you've got to earn it to pay him back. It's behold how much God has loved you. Now, God has given you a new love for Christ. That new love desires to keep his commandments. That new love by the Spirit wants to obey the Lord. How do we fight temptation? We do so remembering Satan is active 
and prowling, but we stand in the victory of Christ. He defeated the devil. He empowers us to fight, and we do so every day wearing the gospel armor of God. You don't do this alone. You have the spirit of the living God in you, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And you go forth today, Christian, with the breastplate of righteousness. This is arming you this week against Satan as accuser. You have the gospel boots of peace protecting you against Satan as a serpent who's wanting to strike at the heel of his victims. You have the shield of faith arming you against Satan this week as tempter. You have the helmet of salvation protecting you against Satan as a deceiver. You have the sword, the spirit, protecting you against Satan and your own sinful flesh and a fallen world and the lies that are everywhere around us. We are kept by the power of God through faith. We're not kept by our confidence, not by our pride, and certainly not by our self-righteousness. Let the one who stands take heed lest he fall. But we approach this week and this day dressed in the righteousness of Christ, who himself has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, who himself has suffered when tempted, and he is able to help us who are being tempted. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ has triumphed over hell, and by faith in Jesus, we never will experience the hell that Jesus suffered for us. Thank you that we have a Savior who is made like us in every respect. And we cry out to you now, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us, a sinful people. Lead us not into temptation as we join together to pray that prayer you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.